Morning, everybody. Lovely to see you. Do keep that reading open in front of you for a few minutes if you can. That would be really helpful as we think on these things. And let me ask you, I wonder uh, what you think of when you think about freedom. Uh, maybe you think of the land of the brave and the home of the free. Is it that way around or the other way around? I'm never quite sure uh, which way it goes. Uh, maybe you think of Nelson Mandela and one of the most famous biographies of the, the 20th century when he wrote all about his, his life in South Africa and his imprisonment and then his victorious relief. Um, some of you have probably read it, Long Walk to Freedom. Or maybe you think back just a couple of years to 2021 and July the 19th. Anybody remember that date? We were looking forward to it two years ago. It was Freedom Day, so the government told us, when all the COVID restrictions would finally be gone. Amazing how long ago that suddenly feels, isn't it? What does freedom mean to you? Isaiah writes in these famous words, the Lord has sent me to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. And that's just one of the claims made here at the beginning of Isaiah 61. Um, it's powerful stuff. Um, if you've been coming to St. Luke's for a while, and especially if you've been here over the last few weeks, that probably won't be a surprise. Uh, we've been looking over these last few chapters of Isaiah through this spring. Um, a couple of weeks ago, if you were here when, when Steve Ransley came to preach, you may remember we met the main character who features in this last part of Isaiah. And he's a kind of divine warrior, blazing with goodness and with righteousness, who looks around at God's world with some dismay as he sees all the injustice, everything that is wrong, all the dishonesty, and he knows that he needs to act. And twice in, in those passages we looked at a couple of weeks ago, uh, he says, I was appalled that no one gave support, so my own arm achieved salvation for me. At the centre of these chapters is a real man of action, not just a man of words, a man who sees what is needed and who does something about it. And you may remember from what Steve said that there is a kind of pattern, a shape to these chapters in the, in the, the early 60s of Isaiah. And right at the center is this chapter, chapter 61. In some ways, it's kind of the hinge on which these whole last 10 chapters of Isaiah turns. And there in verse 1, this new voice begins to speak. Um, it's reasonable to assume it's the voice of this divine warrior we've already met. And he says... The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. Now that probably sounds familiar to many of us, yes? It may be familiar for a couple of possible reasons. The first reason is simply that you've been reading Isaiah, uh, which we have been doing together, haven't we? Uh, if you've been at St. Luke's for a few years, we've kept coming back to different parts of it over the last few years. Uh, you maybe remember that in the first part of Isaiah's book, way back in chapter 11, quite a famous passage, Isaiah speaks of God's chosen one, his chosen king, the Messiah. And he says this, The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might. Chapter 11, verse 2. Maybe you also remember that the middle part of Isaiah, those famous chapters from 43 to 55, where we meet the servant of the Lord, the one who will be pierced for our transgressions, by whose wounds... His people will be healed. He is introduced by God with these words in Isaiah 42. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. So, when we meet this 
this warrior, this divine warrior in Isaiah 61. Turns out we've actually met him before. He is someone of absolutely extraordinary importance. He is the character at the centre of the story. And not just Isaiah's story, but the world's story. He is the Messiah of the opening chapters of Isaiah and the servant of the middle chapters. And now he is the conquering king, returning in victory of these closing chapters. It's one and the same person. And throughout all the intricacies of this long book, and I've said before, I know that sometimes people look at a book like Isaiah and think it's a bit complicated. It's so long. We don't know it as well as some of the other parts of the Bible. Well, Isaiah is still weaving his threads and he's tying them together in patterns to show us God's plans for his people and for the nations. In fact, for the whole of creation. Not just in the 8th century BC when he was writing, but right through to the end of history. And it's all about this man who is anointed of God. One reason you might find it familiar is that you've read it in Isaiah already. Of course, there is another reason though, isn't there? which I'm assuming some of you are waiting for me to say, and so I will. Um, stick a bookmark, will you, in Isaiah 61 for just a moment, whether that's electronically or in your paper Bibles, and turn forward with me to Luke chapter 4 on page 1031. Luke chapter 4, 1031. At the very start of Jesus' ministry, this is where Jesus' ministry begins in Luke. The first three and a half chapters have kind of been introduction, a prologue. It's been about Jesus' birth and his family tree and his baptism and his testing in the wilderness. How does Jesus' ministry get introduced in Luke? Well, it happens like this. He's ready to begin what he came to do. Verse 14, we find that Jesus returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, notes once again. And news about him spreads through the whole countryside. He goes up to his hometown, that's Nazareth. And on the Sabbath day, he goes to the synagogue. And he stands up to read from the Bible. And someone gives him the scroll of Isaiah. He unrolls it, because that's what you had to do, rather than turn the page in those days. And he unrolls it to the part which we now call chapter 61. It was before the chapter numbers were given, though. He finds the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Isaiah 61, 1-2, isn't it? And then look what happens. Luke 4, verse 20. Jesus rolls up the scroll again, passes it back to the attendant, and he sits down. And Luke tells us that every eye in the synagogue was looking at Jesus. Everyone was fixed on him. And Jesus says to them, verse 21, Today, I tell you, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's a mic drop to end all mic drops, isn't it? Um, it would be whatever Bible passage you've just read if you begin your sermon by saying to the people there, today I am fulfilling what you have just read. But this is not just any Bible passage, is it? This is the key section of this great book declaring God's plan of salvation. The climactic announcement in Isaiah 61 that the Spirit of the Lord is on the one who God has sent to do his will. It's echoing chapter 42, it's echoing chapter 11, saying, in effect, 
This is the person who the whole of this great book of Isaiah is all about. And Jesus stands there in the synagogue in this small provincial town and says, oh yes, that guy that Isaiah wrote about, that's me. Jesus is all of these things. That's what we need to see. But Isaiah speaks about, he's the chosen one. He's the Messiah. The one who will rescue by his own death, the servant. And now he is the one who will bring freedom and healing and peace. He's the king who conquers. Jesus is the spirit-filled, serving, conquering Messiah who brings healing and freedom and vengeance and comfort. That's those opening verses of Isaiah 61. And that's my first point today, really. In some ways it's obvious. In other ways it's so deep we can hardly get our heads around it. Uh, But it is the main point here that the whole of God's plan in the Scriptures comes together in the mission of Jesus. That is the claim he makes. And so he is the one anointed by the Spirit who is able to proclaim this good news. And of course it's not just a claim he makes. He then goes on and lives it out. When Jesus claims Isaiah 61 for himself, he's saying that God has now done what he's been promising for all those centuries. That now there is a new era. And it's one of salvation and hope for the poor and for the blind and for the captive. Now what does that mean? We might well ask that this morning, mightn't we? What does that mean? You know, Isaiah wrote this stuff 2,700 odd years ago. But there is still poverty, isn't there? People still need healing. There's still blindness, sickness. We know it. People are still captives. And we live in a world where people's lives are limited and short. Hasn't gone away. So what are we to do with verses like this? Are we not to take them literally? Are they they just metaphors? Are we just not there yet? Well, here are three things. The first one I want to say is that this is about ultimate physical reality. In Jesus' kingdom, there will be no blindness, no captivity, no poverty, no darkness. So yes, these are promises for the materially poor, for the physically blind, for the actually locked up. These are verses for those for whom life hurts, hurts now. Isaiah says, Jesus says, it will not hurt forever. We've heard that refrain in these chapters, haven't we, recently? What Isaiah promised could be seen in part uh, as the people of Israel, or at least some of them, were returned to Jerusalem after the exile, some years after Isaiah wrote these words. But it will only be seen fully in Christ's renewed creation when he returns. Second thing is that these verses are also about our deepest spiritual needs. We shouldn't get things upside down. Our greatest need, every single one of us here in church this morning, is for rescue from our spiritual darkness and our poverty and our captivity to sin and death. Unless this is dealt with, we have no hope of new creation or of freedom or of eternal life. But when Jesus quotes Isaiah, and then heads off to live and to die and to rise, he's entering into a battle with the spiritual forces that enslave us. And he's going to defeat them. So let's not limit the promises of Isaiah 61 
to some kind of stuff which happens in the material world. Yes, that's right, but not only. They go way deeper than that. Um, and then thirdly, there is a calling in these verses, isn't there? If we are the people of Jesus, a calling to live out both parts of that reality now. Uh, we are to be the people who bring Jesus' hope to others to be the people who live as though we really believe that we have been freed for eternal life. That is the church's role. Today is Pentecost. We've already been reminded, haven't we? We've been through Good Friday when Jesus died on the cross, Easter Sunday when he rose from the dead. Um, ten days ago, you may not have noticed, but on the Thursday it was Ascension Day uh, when the church particularly remembers that he was lifted up to heaven, to the right hand of God. He is still there on the throne. And now we come to Pentecost, because this is the amazing thing that Jesus does for his people. Now, quoting Isaiah 61 in Luke 4, he says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me to do all of these things, bring good news and healing and freedom and peace. But now he also pours out his Spirit on his church, his people, to send us out to follow him and to work those things in his world. Now, you might remember the risen Jesus in John 20 meeting his disciples. And he says to them, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. It means that Jesus' disciples' job is to, to live out what Jesus has done, to bring hope and healing to the poor, to the hurting and to the captive. And yes, that does mean materially helping those who are in need. And yes, it does mean spiritually proclaiming the good news that there is eternal life to be found in one place, in one man, in Jesus Christ. The two go together. It is not an either or. So there we are. Um, I'm conscious I've nearly run out of time. And we haven't got beyond the first two or three verses at this point. So let's just have a look quickly back at Isaiah 61, if you would flick back, and see how this works out in practice. Uh, in verses 3 to 7, we get some more idea of what this spirit-anointed king is going to do and what it means for his people. Um, this is what Jesus does for God's people who come to him here, uh, for those who grieve in Zion, Zion meaning Jerusalem, for those who grieve at what hurts, the stuff in life which feels rubbish, for those who grieve at what traps us, the temptations and the sins and the guilt. For those who look around and grieve at what is wrong and unfair and unjust. God's chosen one, Jesus, he comes and look, he replaces ashes with beauty, verse 3. He replaces mourning with joy and he replaces despair with praise. He says they will get a new name. And new names in the Bible, in the world of the Bible, meant new status. They will be called oaks of righteousness. People who are righteous before God. He says they will build, verse 4. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. It's a Pentecost theme. In Genesis chapter 3, and ever since, our rebellion against God has brought ruin to his world, to all of creation. But in the kingdom of Jesus, the anointed king, they will restore the places long devastated, Isaiah says. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. He says, verse 5, they will be recognized. In the kingdom of this king, those who were considered strangers, foreigners, 
they will be shepherding the flocks of the Lord's people, tending their vineyards. It's a picture of cooperation between the peoples in place of alienation and division. It's a Pentecost theme too, isn't it? And in verse 6, they will be called priests of the Lord, ministers of God, those who mediate God's goodness to others and fill the world with his hope. And in all of these things, there is a wonderful mixture. Isaiah is speaking both to what will happen in Jerusalem in the days following God's people's exile in Babylon, but he's also looking ahead to a further horizon, to God building his church through the spirit-empowered ministry of the good news and the people of Jesus living it out in every generation. But he's also looking beyond that because, of course, the people of God in this generation only ever live it out partially and in a kind of broken way. He's really looking ahead to the fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth, which are coming where we will have new names in a new city, the city of the people of God, and those from every nation under heaven will be gathered free and healed in his presence. Look at verse 7. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance, and everlasting joy will be yours. So, Jesus is the Spirit-filled, serving, conquering Messiah who brings healing and freedom and comfort and peace. And that is what it looks like to live in his kingdom. In verses 8 to 9, we kind of get an answer to the question, why, why does God do this? Why does he bother with the people who are so rebellious? Why does it matter to him? Well, this is who he is, look. It's because he's righteous and he loves justice and he hates wrongdoing. But it's also in verse 8 because he's faithful. So he will do what he has promised even when we don't. He is faithful to his covenant, which is an everlasting covenant. And thirdly, verse 9, he'll do these things for his people so that all the nations will see what God has done and they will acknowledge the blessing of the Lord on his people. It's to be visible. It's an advert for the goodness of God. This is what God is up to in Isaiah. This is what is fulfilled in Jesus. It is so good. It is, of course, almost beyond our imagination. And it is there to give hope to people who otherwise would have no hope. And so finally, as we get to the last couple of verses of the chapter, we get a response. And it's a response of praise and worship. And it's the response of the anointed one to what his father has done. It's also Isaiah's response to what the Lord has done. And he says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. And what's the key reason for Isaiah's rejoicing and praise? Because he's been given some new clothes. I wonder if you rejoice in new clothes. Maybe you love going out to, to shop for them. Maybe you, you're always looking for them on your phone. Or maybe, like me, you just can't bear it. And you're glad when someone gives you a jumper for Christmas because then you haven't got to go and look for one. Or maybe you have dreams of being in inappropriate clothes in the wrong setting. Apparently that's quite a common sort of dream to have. You're standing up to make a speech. And instead of having a suit, you know, you're wearing something scruffy or even no clothes at all, I'm told. <laughs> but Isaiah is rejoicing because he's been given garments of salvation to wear, robes of righteousness. Great phrases, aren't they? Now, we know from Isaiah chapter 6, if you remember, that he's, he is well aware of his own sinfulness and failings before God. But here in this prophecy of the conquering king, 
with the Spirit of the Lord upon him to bring good news and healing and freedom. Isaiah knows that he is counted as righteous. He has the clothes to be at the party. And he is glad and he praises the Lord. How do we respond to a reading like this one? Um, Let me just give you three suggestions as I close. First one is this. If you feel broken or trapped or in that despair that Isaiah speaks of in verse 3, in a gathering this size, some of us will be feeling a little bit like that. Isaiah's message for you this morning is don't forget to lift your eyes to that greater horizon, to know the hope of Jesus who turns ashes into beauty and mourning into joy and despair to praise. Keep that hope in front of you. That's one response we might want to make. Um, Secondly, maybe you read these verses and you feel challenged. You know, maybe you're asking the question, as the Spirit-filled people of Jesus, that is who we are on the day of Pentecost, what does it look like for us to be those who proclaim this good news in this generation, in this place? How are we called to bind up the brokenhearted, to free the captives, uh, bring hope and release from darkness for the prisoners? Those are questions we should be asking, whether it's as individuals or as a church. Or thirdly, maybe you're just struck by Jesus' jaw-dropping claiming of these words for himself in Luke 4. For taking Isaiah 61, kind of representing everything that Isaiah says and saying, it's all about me. And then he's living that out and carrying it through, dying and rising and ascending so that we might be adorned with those robes of righteousness and salvation, given a new name and a new calling, and made part of his worldwide people. And maybe your response, if that is you, is just to say yes to Jesus again, or maybe even for the first time. And there is no better time to do that than now, because he has done these things for you, for us, what we could never do for ourselves. So we're going to sing again uh, in just a moment. We're going to sing a a couple of songs. Um, They are one way in which we can respond to the Lord by worshipping him and praising him, giving thanks for this great news that we read about in the book of Isaiah. Um, As we sing, another response you might like to make is to pray, whether that is just praying standing where you are. Um, But as as is our practice, and we've been establishing again recently, uh, Maggie Turnbull and I, we're going to be standing over there somewhere behind a font, If you'd like to come and have someone pray with you, then we would be glad to pray for you while the singing takes place. So please just just come and join us. If someone's already praying with us, uh, you can just um, have a seat in one of the pews there while you're waiting. But let's respond to the Lord. He has done good things by his Holy Spirit. So if you're able to, do stand.